right. Have any of you ever had to flee something? Flee a nation for crimes you won't mention here today. Flee. I'm just I'm offering up opportunities uh, for confession and, you know, all these. Um, none of you have ever had to flee anything before? Flee for your life. Flee because you don't like what's going on in a room. I'll tell you a story. Um, I have fled before. This isn't a glorious story. I told my wife I would share this story. Um, she's probably okay with me sharing this story. Uh, we were just married. We were on our honeymoon. And um, we were in Disney World. Um, great place to take a honeymoon. And uh, we were going on all the rides. Now, you should know I'm not a roller coaster fan. Um, I don't enjoy the dropping sensation because I can't control it. And so I don't like it. Um, and uh, so I stay away from the roller coasters. Now, I enjoy theme park rides, things that spin you fast, and um, even Space Mountain, because it doesn't drop straight down, it just kind of curves around. I'm okay with that, but like the log ride, not acceptable in my worldview. Um, so there was this new ride at the time that had just come out at Disney World called Mission to Mars. Any of you familiar with this ride? Any of you been on it? Okay. Um, yeah, you've been on it. Thank you, Shelley. Um, <laughs> Okay, so uh, I had not known much about this ride other than it was supposed to be like going into space. Now, I didn't know if it was a simulator. I didn't know if it was a roller coaster. It was just this unknown kind of thing that my wife wanted to go on and I didn't. Um, because we were freshly married and I thought, well, I can't, I can't be wrong by my wife in the first couple days of marriage. We'll get in line. We'll go. It can't be that bad. But you know Disney builds the experience, right? So as you're in line, things are, there's sounds and there's sights and there's theme music and they're playing videos and it's kind of building this anticipation in you. So the closer we got to this, very long line, the closer we got to the front where you get in these little partitioned rows in which they open this door into this black void that you step into and then they shut the door and you don't know what happens beyond that door, my heart is like, you know, and I'm, I'm starting to sweat, and my wife is like, it'll be fun, it'll be great. I'm like, I, I, and I'm practically, I'm almost having a heart attack. I am so nervous about what is about to happen. So we step up, and we're in like one, two, and three, and it's just Shelly and I in this little, you're going to enter this little black pod that you don't know what's going to go on. And Shelly's in front of me. They open the door, and they're, you know, and steam is coming out, and all these steams, and Shelly steps in, and I take one look, and I go, nope. And I turn around, and I... <laughs> I, I go down the exit ramp. I am out. I am no way. So, so I get down to the bottom, and I'm, I'm waiting in the gift store. My wife is reliving this in her head, I can tell. She, uh, she has told me she sat down, she got her seatbelt buckled, and she turns around to say, see, it's not that, and I was gone. <laughs> and the door shut, and she had to ride the ride alone. Now, I am sitting in the gift shop, looking at trinkets that are theme-related. And in the back of my mind, I've got this cool exterior because I don't want to, like, panic in the store. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, we're going to get divorced. Like, we have been married five days, and it's over because I left my bride hanging at this ride. I have fled my wife um, and the experience. And so I'm just kind of waiting awkwardly at the exit ramp, waiting for her to come down the... She comes and the look on her face, husbands, if you've ever upset your wives, and there's that look that you like, you know it does not go well for you in the land in which you dwell. That was the look she gave me, 
and she grabbed me forcibly by the arm and said, you are going on this ride. She dragged me all the way around and kept me in front of her, holding me the entire time. And when the door opened, she shoved me on the ride. She belted me in, and the door shut, and I am, I am close to tears, so scared of this ride. Do you know it was the best ride I've ever been on? <laughs> we must have gone on that ride so much, the ride attendant knew our names by the end of our honeymoon. We were there every morning to ride that ride like four times because it was so much fun, and then any time the ride line was short, we'd go back. I fled needlessly. I had no idea how much fun that ride would be. It was a blast. Now, sometimes we flee, right? Sometimes situations get the better of us. Sometimes fear gets a hold of us. Sometimes we're not really sure what's going on and we just choose to check out. Uh, it happens in life. It's a response of the flesh. This morning, I want to read to you um, the beginning of the story of a man who fled. Um, scripture is full of people that we are not necessarily supposed to model our lives after, right? Um, scripture is not a book of do and do nots, necessarily, and it's not a book of heroes of which we're supposed to model our life after. It's one story about Jesus' redemptive work for mankind. Now, within that story, there are people, there are um, nations, there are groups that choose to obey or choose not to obey. They choose to obey or they choose to flee. They get to that point in their life where they see the door open and there's a void and they're not quite sure, and they think, yes, I'll enter into it, or no, I'm checking out and I'm going to just panic and run away. Now, such a story we find in the book of Jonah. A short four chapters, if you'd flip there. We're not going to read all four chapters today. We'll be here for a couple weeks. But we're going to look at what it means to obey God. And Jonah is a classic example of someone who flees. So if you will, stand with me for the reading of the word. We are going to read from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, simply verses 1 through 3. And we're going to start here this morning. Jonah flees the presence of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we, um, we read in your word three short verses this morning that tell us the beginning of a story that is epic. Every Sunday school kid knows this story, Jonah and the whale. Lord, would you open our hearts to your word this morning? Would you reveal to us... Um, parts of our character that are a little bit like Jonah, so that we might learn to be more like you. And when circumstances change in our lives, when we want to flee, Lord, from what you're asking us to do, instead we dig in and we'd say, no, um, Lord, you've got this great plan and we want to participate with you, even if we can't see how it might work out. Lord, give us your heart this morning and open our ears to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, now... I do have a cold, so I'm going to get a tissue before I start it in here. Okay. Before we really truly dive into Jonah, I want us to get some background, some interesting information about the book, about the person, about the time. Because we all come to the table with preconceived notions about the book of Jonah, right? Um, Let me test this for you. Jonah was swallowed by a... No, a giant fish. 
Um, it does not specify what Jonah was swallowed by, just a large sea creature. Some have said it's a whale, some have said it's Loch Ness Monster, some have said it's the Leviathan, that we do not quite know what it was. Um, we do not quite know what Jonah was swallowed by. Um, culturally, we're taught it's a whale, and, you know, hey, might have been. We don't really know. But we need to understand that there's some things that we bring to the table that may or may not be actually true. So let's get some solid ground that we can start off with. Um, first and foremost, the title of the book is named after who? Jonah. Okay, that's an easy one. That's not a trick question, right? Um, Jonah. Um, yeah, the, um, that's the title from the main character. Um, although, who wrote the book, we're not quite certain. Um, there are no indicators anywhere in the full complement of Scripture to tell us who wrote this book. Now, a lot of times, people write a book and then it's named after them, right? So we can make an, an educated guess that perhaps it was written by Jonah. Um, it is uh, spoken in the first person. Jonah's telling his story, so it makes sense that he wrote it, although um, there is nothing in the book that says, I, Jonah, write this, or anywhere else in Scripture that says... Um, Jonah wrote the book. We're going to assume that that's who wrote it, though, because it makes the most sense. Um, Jonah's name means dove, right? That's a good name for a boy. Um, so his parents uh, named him Dove. Um, he was a servant of the Lord from Gath Hefer. Okay, you see that in Second Kings. We get that information. A little town in the tribe of Zebulon, a seafaring tribe there. Um, Jonah lived during the reign of Jeroboam II during the northern kingdom. When there were two kingdoms in Israel, northern and southern, um, he lived during the reign of Jeroboam II. Again, you can find that in 2 Kings 14. And Jonah made a lot of prophets. Uh, he was a prophet, so he made a lot of predictions. Um, and one of the ones that he made was that Israel's boundaries would expand. He was the prophet that brought good news to Israel. Israel, you're going to do great. Everything's going to prosper. Your kingdom will expand. And all of those things came true. This prophet was a Hebrew, um, the son of Amittai. He was uh, the only Old Testament prophet to attempt to run from God. The only Old Testament prophet to attempt to run from God. There's a lot of prophets old in the Old Testament, uh, minor and major prophets, and some of them were asked to do some mighty strange things. If you've ever read the prophets, dancing naked in the streets and um, putting on plays for kings and doing all kinds of things, very strange, very difficult job. Jonah's the only one who chose to run. Um, he's also one of four prophets whose ministries Christ talked about. Of all of the prophets in the Bible, only four are talked about by Jesus. One of them happens to be the prophet who chose to flee. Um, the other ones are Elijah, Elisha, and Isaiah. So Jonah's in good company, right? You've got Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. These are like the powerhouse prophets and the guy who fled. Those are the ones Jesus spoke about. Jonah's ministry had some parallels to his immediate predecessor, Elijah, and Elisha, they ministered to Israel. They were called to Gentile ministry, okay? So he's, got, he's not kind of out of the ordinary. God's not asking him to do something he hasn't asked other prophets to do. So he's right in the vein of what God would have him do, preach to his people and speak to the Gentiles. Now, this all took place roughly 760 B.C., okay? Eighth century. We're looking at somewhere in the 700s, best guess, somewhere around 750, 760 uh, before Christ. Um, there are some major themes in this book. 
We're going to hit on them as we go through, but I want to give you the overview, okay? Um, that's why you stayed back there, isn't it, Jason? I'm not flipping forward here very well. Could you just knock to the next slide? There we go. Themes. Um, okay, so here are the themes that we are going to find. Um, unlike the other minor prophets, this book is written as a story of a prophet's personal struggle with God over a mission to which he has been sent. We're going to learn that there is sometimes personal struggle in following God. It's not always easy to do what God has asked you to do. We're also going to learn that God gives grace to his people and the Gentiles. It's not just about Israel, it's about the whole world. That's good news, right? Because we are all Gentiles who have been saved by faith in Christ. We're also going to learn that God's warnings, I warn you that you need to repent, these kinds of warnings in Scripture, also contain a promise for blessing. If you repent, it will go well with you, right? These are good things. And also, God's motives are shaped by a deep, deep love. Everything God does is shaped and characterized by his love for you, by his love for the world, by his love for the nation of which he speaks. Um, the book of Jonah outlines similarly like this. You have Jonah's disobedience in chapter 1, Jonah's submission in chapter 2, Jonah's mission in chapter 3, and Jonah's motives in chapter 4. So it's disobedience, submission, mission, and motives. Very simple outline, four chapters, can't get it too complicated. A little bit about Israel. It was a politically prosperous time for Israel. They were doing quite well. Jonah prophesied that. It came true. Um, the Assyrians, which you know are like the big bad nation of the day, they fought with Israel all the time. They were occupied with matters elsewhere in their kingdom, which meant that um, the northern kingdom captured much of Syria for Israel. This was very good. Jonah prophesied in an era where there was peace and prosperity because of the compassion of God towards Israel. God's chosen people were safe and warm and happy, living off the fat of the land. It was warm and fuzzy for them, right? They made a profession of true religion. That's what Israel did. We love God. They boasted they were a holy people. We are set apart. We are different than everyone else because God's favor is upon us. Circumcision was a symbol and a pledge of God's covenant, but they despised the prophets, except Jonah, right? Because Jonah brought the good news. They despised the rest of the prophets, so the teaching of the prophets was pretty much useless and fell on deaf ears. And it was in this time that Jonah was called to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and pronounce judgment upon it. If God's children wouldn't listen, God will increase his flock and raise up people who will worship him. Um, hopefully this works now. Not so much. Well, can you hit the next slide for me? There we go. This is Nineveh. Um, actually, not a picture taken, but a painting made, right? There were no cameras back in the day. Nineveh um, was a city located on the east bank of the Tigris River, um, about 550 miles from Samaria, the capital of, uh, the, capital of the, modern, uh, or the northern kingdom, and about 220 miles from where modern Baghdad is. So I'm trying to give you perspective of where um, Nineveh was. It's uh, 220 miles from Baghdad, okay? Um, and uh, it was a very, uh, back one slide real quick. It was a very prosperous city. Um, 
It had these huge walls. There was, I mean, it was richity rich rich, okay? The Assyrian army was very powerful in its day and right. They had just huge um, palaces, and it was, it was a very well-to-do city. Uh, okay, this next slide. This is um, Nineveh today. This is a little map of Nineveh. You can see uh, the little river going through here. The palace of Sennacherib, this great um, king of Assyria who uh, sent a letter to Hezekiah in Kings and said, you're like a bird in a cage to me and I will wipe you out. And Hezekiah said, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. And overnight, the Assyrian army was wiped out. Great story. You should read it. This is where he came from. Okay. He had this beautiful city, massively large. Now today, this is an aerial shot. Can you see the outline of where the great walls actually stood? Um, now, modern day cities have kind of moved in, but there's ruins that have not been touched by modern uh, living. And the same river, you see that, goes through. Um, the same river off to the side here is off to the side here. You can really tell where Nineveh was. Let's throw up the next slide real quick. Um, this is the remainder of one of Nineveh's walls um, taken from uh, the view of the river. And, uh, you know, you've got modern city next to it and Nineveh's walls. Nineveh was a, um, a city, um, large like Babylon, protected by an outer wall and an inner wall. Get this. The inner wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. That's just the inner wall, not the outer wall. The city was a fortress. And before Jonah arrived at this um, seemingly... Um, impenetrable city, two plagues had erupted there, one in 765 roughly and one in 759, right about the time Jonah had arrived just before. And then there was a total eclipse of the sun in about 763, all before Jonah arrived. Um, those things, those um, two plagues and eclipse of the sun were considered by the culture of the day to be signs of divine anger from the gods that Assyria worshipped, divine anger upon the city for whatever reason. And it might explain why when Jonah showed up on their doorstep and said, repent because God's angry with you, the Ninevites were like, yes, we will, because we have experienced wrath and we don't want any more of it. God used some things to soften the hearts of the Ninevites for Jonah's message. Now, we've read um, the first three verses um, I want to just break it down for you, right? The first three verses. Um, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, and we're just going to stop there for a moment. There's a lot in this first verse. Jonah and the Lord had a relationship, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Um, he was a prophet. He spoke with God. God spoke with him. They had relationship. It's not like God showed up at some unbeliever's doorstep and said, I want you to go carry my message, which God can do and has done in the past. But in this particular instance, God showed up to someone who knew God, loved God, followed God, obeyed God. His name literally meant dove or a son of faithfulness. Jonah was the faithful guy, the guy who heard the good news and preached the good news. He was the preacher who had good messages for people. He not only believed in God, but like he worked for God as a prophet. Literally what a prophet means is to receive the word of God and to speak it. To hear what God has to say and to say it boldly, regardless of the message. He understood God, listened to him so that he could repeat it to others, and he was well-liked because... He always brought messages of blessing. 
He was, in fact, a celebrity in the day, unlike Elijah, Elisha, who constantly said, repent, you're an evil generation, God's going to smite you if you don't pay attention. Those are not encouraging kinds of words, right? But Jonah brought the words like, God loves you, things will go well for you, the kingdom will be blessed. Which message would you rather hear? Right? Jonah was popular. He'd come into town. Have you guys seen the VeggieTales version of this movie? If you have, you'll know this great, con they put it right in context. Jonah comes into town, huge party, because everyone wants to know, what's the good news, Jonah? What's the blessing that we're going to get from God today? It's fantastic. He was a celebrity. He was a good news bringer. Anywhere he went, good followed. Compared to other prophets, um, he had it really good. So we know that much about Jonah thus far. Verse 2 says this, um, God said, arise, meaning get up. Okay. Go to Nineveh, meaning get up, I have a job for you. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for evil has come up before me. Now this is a change in job for Jonah. Getting up is one thing. He gets up and he goes to the people of Israel, no big deal. But get up and go, what? A Gentile evil city? And proclaim a message of repentance and possibly doom. Um, again, if you've seen the VeggieTales version, but God, that can't possibly be right. They are not your people. That is a difficult job. I don't like to be the bad news bearer. I'm the good news bearer. Wherever I go, good happens. Jonah here is getting a job that is not like his other job. God gave him a specific instruction. Go to Nineveh a very specific city in a very specific location, and tell them that what they're doing is something that I don't like. I think they're evil. Have you ever walked into a strange city and just stood on the street corner and said, God sees you're evil. Repent. No? Right? Awkward, right? It's a difficult job to walk to a city you've never seen, people who don't know the God that you know, and to say, God thinks everything you're doing is evil. wants you to change your ways. That's really difficult. So let's not underplay what God has called Jonah to do. God has called Jonah to do something that's difficult, but he needs to be obedient. So what does he do? Um, he doesn't do it. Arise and go to Nineveh, which implies getting up from his home, leaving his comforts, and going on a journey. Now, let's put this in perspective. The distance required um, a journey of about a month, Okay. Um, if Jonah traveled the normal distance of 15 to 20 miles a day, um, then it would take him about a month to get from where he was living to Nineveh. It also meant that that entire time he had to wrestle with the idea that he was going to have to preach a very difficult message to the people of Nineveh. That he was going to have to say things that were hard to hear for believers, let alone for people who do not yet know God. He was the good news bringer to Israel, not a repentance preacher to the Gentiles. That's how he viewed himself. The Ninevites were called evil in Scripture. God says, I've seen the evil which they have done. It's come up before me. That term, the word evil that we have in our Scriptures translated as evil, um, it's used nine times in the book of Jonah in four chapters. That's, pretty, that's a pretty heavy usage in four chapters. Um, each time, it refers to the connection between um, sin, the evil, and destruction and death that follows it. So when you read in Jonah in the coming weeks, the evil that is before the Lord 
It's talking about the sin of the people. And when you hear about the destruction that follows evil, that's talking about the death that comes because of sin, okay? Um, but it's, it's interesting because this term isn't used just in relationship to Nineveh in this book. As we read further, we're going to see that this same term and the consequences of sin and destruction, sin and death, are applied to Jonah as well in his own heart and attitude. So God says, Jonah, get up. Go to Nineveh. And then in verse 3, Jonah's made his decision, right? At his children's Bible, basically, Jonah says, I don't want to. You can't make me. I'm going to run away. That's pretty much, you're nodding. You, yeah, it's a good story, isn't it? So Jonah tries to run away. But it's a very silly plan, as the Bible, my daughter reads, says, because you can't run away from God, can you? Um, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down onto the ship, and went with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. How many times can you fit going away from the Lord to Tarshish, going away from the Lord to Tarshish, going away from the Lord in one sentence? God's trying to make a point here, and Jonah's speaking it. I was running away from God to Tarshish. To Tarshish is where I was going to run away from the Lord. I was going to flee the Lord to Tarshish on a ship, so I paid so that I could run away from the Lord. He's driving his point home. We can get a, the next slide, the map up here. Okay. It's always good to see uh, kind of maps, right? So here's roughly where he boarded his ship in Joppa. Okay. Here's the you know, month-long journey to Nineveh over land. And here's the journey to Tarshish. He was trying to take a really long cruise in the opposite direction, physically and spiritually, that God wanted him to go. You know, nothing ever good starts with the sentence, the word but. <laughs> You've raised children, right? I really, uh, you know, you should um, not do X, Y, or Z. But everyone else is doing it. But I don't want to. When you're a parent and you hear the sentence start with but, you just, you just want to like put duct tape over their mouth and say, think carefully before you finish that sentence. Um, this sentence started with, but Jonah rose to flee. Nothing ever good starts with but. It means we want to put our own conditions on something. It means we want to do something our own way. God told Jonah to go, to rise up and go to Nineveh. But instead, Jonah rose up and went to Tarshish. And the two were not close, right? Um, in any remote way, these things are not near one another. Um, 220 miles from modern Baghdad and the coast of Spain. Now, what you need to know about Tarshish is, A, it's in the opposite direction from where God called him to go. But B, it was the city that was on the, quote, edge of the world for them. They didn't know anything beyond Tarshish in that day. There was, like, undiscovered territory beyond that. Jonah said, I'm at the port of Joppa. Where can I go that puts me the absolute furthest from God's will? Where can I run away to that is the farthest place that man knows? Tarshish, great. It's on literally the edge of the world. If they were flat earthers, then they would believe that just past Tarshish, the world would literally fall off into nothingness. 
They, there was nothing there. It was just Tarshish, the end of the world, the most remotest place he could go. Being well-versed in scriptures and the Psalms, though, because he was a prophet of God, he knew he could not flee from God's presence. He could just flee from God's will. And the scriptures say things like, Oh, where can I go from your presence? It says in the Psalms. Where can I go that your spirit will not find me? You search the earth. Your eyes roam back and forth. He knew he couldn't get away from God, but he was going to get away from what God wanted him to do. His actions clearly stated, I'm resigning. You've asked me to do something, and nope, I resign. I'm going to go retire in Tarshish. He rejected the terms of his employment. He was fleeing from service to God. Jonah not only rejected the Lord, turned his back on him, literally and figuratively, as he was going somewhere else, but he rejected the Lord's will, not only for his life and his own spiritual well-being, but for the well-being of an entire city that needed Jesus. Jonah said, I care more about my own comfort than I care more about a people group I've never met. And get this next slide up here. Um, this is where the road, the rubber hits the road for us. Jonah, Jesus, and you, right? This is where we're going to be for a couple weeks. Jonah loved and served God, but he chose to flee when the task was not ideal. See, he was sent to a nation of sinners that didn't know God, that didn't love God. And he was called to tell them, repent, because your deeds are evil. And the evil deeds that you do are going to bring death and destruction, not only on you, but on people around you. But if he did that, his obedience would cost him, right? So he decided to go the cheap route. He didn't demonstrate his love for God. So while he loved and served God, he chose to flee when the task was hard. Someone else was sent in Scripture. Moses was sent in Scripture. Abraham sent in Scripture. The disciples were sent in Scripture. Can you think of anyone else who was sent? Who said it? Sunday school answer? Jesus, okay? Jesus was sent. I'll read this to you now. I'm also going to read this to you later. It's actually our scripture memory verse for the week. So if you're taking note of what those scripture memory verses are, it's John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. See, even Jesus was sent by the Father. Jesus was God. Let's get that next slide up there. Jesus was God. Um, he loved and served God. And he chose to obey God, even though the task was not ideal, right? So you can see Jonah and Jesus right next to one another. And everything that we have done or not done, everything that God has asked us to do and we've failed to do, when Jesus lived his life, he lived it perfectly so that his perfect record becomes ours. It becomes imputed to us, given to us, laid over us, so that where we failed, God sees Jesus' success in our life. And that's a beautiful thing, right? He get, we get his righteousness, and we see that. Jonah and Jesus next to one another. Jonah called to go preach to people who didn't know God. 
to preach a message of repentance and salvation. And it was a difficult message. And if he went, it might be very difficult. And he chose not to do it. Jesus was sent to the earth to a people that didn't know him or love him to preach a message of repentance and salvation. A very difficult message to preach. But he chose to go regardless of what it would cost him. You see how the two compare? That where Jonah failed, Jesus succeeded. And thankfully, he did because, right, we're, we're living proof of Jesus' success. Um, Jesus was sent to a world of sinners, called them to repent of sin and get grace instead of death. And unlike Jonah who ran away, Jesus' obedience cost him greatly, right? In order to be obedient to the call that God had given Christ, he had to humble himself to the point of death on a cross so that all people for all times could be reconciled to him through faith. He paid for his mission with his life. Any of you been on a missions trip? Yeah? Did it cost you your life? No. It cost Jesus his life. He went to a city, to a nation, to a world with one end in mind. Preach the kingdom and die doing it. That's a heavy, heavy thing he did for us. Next slide. Um, you're presented with a choice this morning. Do you love and serve God is the first question you need to ask yourself. Do you love and serve God? And if so, do you love and serve God like Jonah loved and served God? So long as it was comfortable? So long as you weren't called to do something that was difficult? So long as your comfort zone wasn't breached? so long as it was under your own terms? Or do you love and serve God like Jesus loved and served God? Submitting fully to the will of the Father, no matter what it costs you. Two different types of love and serve. And then, will you flee or will you obey? You cannot be a Christ follower. Active in your faith, praying, reading the word, and not be a missional Christian. They do not go hand in hand if you are a Christ follower and a non-missional Christian. They cannot be in the same sentence. They cannot be in the same lifestyle. A Christ follower is a missional Christian. Nazarene Church, we're a missional church. As one of the great distinctives of the Nazarene Church globally, of our denomination, we are a missional church. It's one of the three. We are Christ followers, and therefore, one and the same, we are missional Christians. Where God calls us to go, we will go. Whom he tells us to speak to, we will speak to. Where he calls us to minister, we will minister. Christ follower equals missional Christian. To say you are a Christian, and at best do nothing, and at worst flee from the mission you are called to, by your own actions to reject the, it is by your own actions to reject the very action that saved you from your sin. I am called to be a Christian, but I refuse to be a missional Christian. Meaning, I want to follow Christ, model my life after Christ, but I refuse to do what he did. Right? That's, you can't live that way. You can't say, I received the mission that Christ lived for me, but I refuse to live that mission towards others. He would read like this, I'm thankful that Christ obeyed, but I will not obey. 
I am thankful that I was forgiven, but I will not forgive. I am thankful that I have received grace, but I will not give grace. I am thankful that God is generous to me, but I will not be generous to those around me. I am thankful God humbly served me, and I won't humbly serve other people. That's an attitude that can't exist in the heart of a Christian. You are either a Christ follower, fully in body and mind and spirit and will, or you love God like Jonah loved God, so long as it's comfortable. The wedding vows that say, I will love you as long as I'm able, are not wedding vows, and I've heard those spoken before. I will love you as long as I'm able. Well, Scripture gives us a promise. God will enable us, right? It says this, if you pick up in John 20 again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he said this, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He's not asking us to do something that he didn't do, and he's not asking us to do something that we cannot do under his power. Christ enables us to love and serve him with our words and our actions and our lives. God is ascending God. And if you follow ascending God, if you're all in with this lifestyle, if you're all in Christ, then that means you are sent. If you follow Christ, who is ascending God, then you are, by definition, a Christian. And a Christian is one who is sent. A Christian is one who is missional. Are you sent to a distant land? Maybe not. For us, Ketchikan was a distant land, right? <laughs> we were sent to Ketchikan. We'd never been to Alaska before. To us, it was the uttermost parts of the end of the earth, where polar bears roam and penguins, you know, and igloos, and that's what we had in our mind. You might not be sent to a foreign land. Now, most Christians not sent to overseas missions. There are a few that are, and it's a calling. You're probably not sent to a distant land. More likely, and most certainly, God has sent you to where you are. Where you are currently is where you have been sent. Does that make sense? Okay. The community that you see every day, the people that you interact with every week, your co-workers, your employees, your family, the people at the grocery store, the bank teller, that when you deposit your paycheck, you see at the same time every week, and unless they're sick, they're there and you're there to deposit the check, right? You build a relationship with certain people over time. Who has God called you to build relationship with? Um, next slide. Um, uh, yeah, identify your God-given community. In your bulletins, you should have one of these. It's like a bookmark, okay? It'll fit like a bookmark in your Bible. I designed it that way for a reason. I'm clever and crafty so that you can have this with you. <laughs> Pull out that handout. The average person on the face of the planet interacts with between 8 and 15 people regularly. The same 8 and 15 people regularly every week. This community of 8 to 15 people that you interact with regularly, that you see in various doings, is unique to you and you only. 
No one else on the face of the planet has the same group of 8 to 15 people that you do. There may be overlaps, but the chance that someone else has that identical group of 8 to 15 people, very, very, very slim. You share interests with these people. You share work schedules with these people. You share hobbies. You share family. You see them and you interact with them regularly. And so you have this unique opportunity in that community of 8 to 15 people that you see regularly to build relationship. You are sent and uniquely equipped to these 8 to 15 people. Okay? I want you to wrestle with this. Um, there's a term for this 8 to 15 people in Scripture. It's called oikos. It's this Greek term that means your people, your community, your people. Who are your peeps? Okay? Um, you could translate oikos, my peeps. Where are my peeps at? They're my oikos. Okay? Um, you have an oikos. Every single one of us has an oikos, a community that you are uniquely able to relate to, to speak into. You do CrossFit. I do not do CrossFit. I do not have the same community you have. I could try and go talk with CrossFit-minded people. Right. Yeah, thank you. It's true. They would be lifting massive weights, and I would be drinking a soda, okay? I mean... I'm not uniquely equipped to reach CrossFit people. I'm uniquely equipped to reach graphic design people. I like graphic design. I can speak Photoshop and Illustrator up the wazoo. There's some folks in town here that share that same passion. I found them. I'm trying to find intentional ways to build a relationship with them. There's 8 to 15 people that I know that God has called me to speak into because I'm in their life on a weekly basis, because I see them regularly, because we share common interests, which means there's already a cultural bridge for me to be in their life. God has sent you to those people, your oikos. Do you know who they are? Have you thought about this unique community that God has called you to be missional to? Um, I want you to take this sheet of paper, and if you know them off the top of your head now, you can, but I want you to, I want you to think about this. Right, I gave you eight. If you come up with 15, great. The average person, eight to 15, okay? Write down the names of those people that you see regularly. Some of them might already be believers, but they're in your community because a community of believers is called to minister to one another too, right? We're called to pray for one another, to bear burdens with one another, so if you have believers on your list, that's okay. If your list is all believers, that's not okay. If you have 8 to 15 believers on your list, tell them that you love them, that you pray for them, and group them as one item, believing friends. And they get out into the world, people, and make some unbelieving friends. 8 to 15 people that should be on your list. And here's what I want you to do when you have that list. Because you get the same commission that Jonah gets. Arise and go to your people. So every day, pray for these people by name. Whether it's in the morning or the evening, or whether you're having your coffee break, it doesn't really matter when you pray. Okay? Make a concerted effort 
to pray for these people by name every day, for their families, for an opportunity to speak to them about life, about Jesus, about their family. Invite their family to dinner at your house. Have your kids play with their kids. Find out if they have needs you can meet that are financial or physical or emotional or relational. Ask them, can I pray for you? Intentionally engage them in conversation when you see them. Don't just let them be in your presence and not speak to them. If they are on your list, they are your God-given missions field. Your oikos. You are responsible for them. You do not know if they are on any other believer's oikos list. So you are to be missional towards these people. Don't be weird, though. Okay? I'm going to say this all the time from the pulpit. Don't stalk them. Don't be creepy with your Bible in your hand, walking up behind them, praying blessings on them, and, you know, being strange to them. Just love them. And as opportunities arise, take advantage of them. Invite them to your community group, right? We're going to be starting up our community groups, our small groups here in the near future, um, because the series in Matthew that we're going to be entering into is designed to not just be taught from the pulpit, but to be engaged in in small community groups, okay? So there's going to be two layers to this uh, Matthew series, in the teaching on Sunday and in your community group, where you can get together and really dive in together to this. Community groups are a great place to invite people from your oikos list, right? Because for non-believers, this could be scary. Sitting in a pew, getting yacked at by some guy they don't know about some God they don't know, People get saved like that all the time. But more often than not, you get introduced to Christ by someone you know. How many of you were introduced to Christ by someone you knew? Show of hands. Nice and high. Show of hands. How many of you were introduced to Christ by a complete stranger? Okay. This is statistically perfect. One person raised their hand. The way people come to know who Christ is is by seeing it lived out in the life of Christ-following Christians. And those Christ-following Christians understand they're missional Christians. They understand their oikos, and they seek after their oikos. They pray for their oikos. They intentionally develop relationships with their oikos. Because you are the person, statistically speaking, that will lead these people to Christ. And if you're not praying for them, and if you're not intentionally seeking a relationship with them, and if you are not sent to them regularly... How will they hear? How will they know? How will they repent? If every single one of us prays for our 8 to 15, okay, if you get excited about 20, go for it, okay? I'm not going to stop you. Uh, And God gives us the opportunity to lead one to Christ every year. We've talked about this before, right? We would double in size in one year. We'd go from 60, roughly, to 120 in one year. What would that look like? We couldn't fit 120 in this sanctuary legally. We'd have to have two services within one year. Is it about service numbers? No. Is it about souls coming to Christ? Yes. Now, what if every one of those 120 had an oikos? And when you won someone to Christ, you replaced that person. And then 200, wait, 120 and 240, right? I don't do math, okay? 480, right? Then that's where I stop doing math. You can do the rest of your math on your calculator. (laughs) There is no reason 
why we shouldn't be seeing a harvest. Because each one of us has a missions field, and God has called us and sent us and equipped us to go and do. I'm going to stop yakking at you now. We're going to worship, okay? But I want you to take this seriously this week. You are sent, so arise and go to the people that God has sent you to. Pray that God provides you opportunities and encourages your heart and their heart as you minister to them. Amen?